Well, listen, I, I have to admit something before we start. This, this doesn't happen often, but I was so conflicted this week about what to bring to church this morning in terms of a word from the Lord with all that is happening in the Middle East and the anxiety level uh, of the world up here. I, I, I felt like I couldn't just ignore it, but at the same time, we're in a series in the Psalms, so I didn't want to leave that either. So um, here's what I want to admit this morning. I put together a whole bunch of things I want to share with you, probably more than I'd like to share. It's a lot, uh, and I don't know if it's going to work. I don't know, but God certainly took me through a process in the last couple days to get me to this point, so I'm going to trust that he is going to teach us something important this morning as we look at what's happening in Israel, and we look at the Psalms, and we try to fit the pieces together. And um, obviously, what's happened this week has become very real to us at Oak Hill, because as you know, we had a, a team of 27 people ready to fly out in less than three weeks to Tel Aviv to tour the land. And we're having to postpone and reschedule. And that breaks my heart. I would do anything to be there now to experience what's happening in the land. But we recognize that there are safety concerns. So what we're going to do this morning, actually going to talk about a lot of passages from the Old Testament. And that means you guys are going to have to be patient with me and listen carefully as we walk through those passages. Uh, so let's just, let's just see what God does. Amen. All right, God loves Jerusalem, and he loves Israel. Now, somehow, in today's convoluted theological world, that has become a controversial statement. With the rise of amillennialism, and just recently postmillennialism now, many Christians in the West have turned away from national and ethnic Israel as God's beloved, and move towards what is sometimes called replacement theology, towards the idea that the church has displaced Israel completely from God's promises, cut them off completely, that they no longer have any role to play whatsoever in the end of days. And to get to that point, um, those who hold to those millennial positions end up having to spiritualize many, many Old Testament passages. And to me, this is a shocking development one that I think ultimately undermines the faithfulness of God and undermines the truthfulness of his word. And here's why. Consider some of the words, just as an opening this morning, I want to share with you from the Old Testament. Consider Moses in Deuteronomy 10, writing to that generation of Israelites about to go into the promised land. And here's what he says. Now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear him, to walk in all his ways, to love him, and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul. He says, for on your fathers did the Lord set his affection to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, even you above all peoples, as it is to this day. Now, three chapters earlier, Moses explained to the Israelites just how much God loved them and why he loved them says, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God, set apart for him, holy. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession, his beloved. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than the other peoples, but you were the fewest of all the peoples. But because the Lord loved you, 
and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. He brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The prophet Zechariah in his day warned the surrounding nations that Israel was uniquely special to Yahweh, saying this, he who touches Israel touches the apple of his eye. In Isaiah 54, Yahweh himself declares his unfailing love for Israel, even though she strays, even though she is a wayward child. God says, for a brief moment, I forsook you, Israel, but with great compassion, I will gather you. In an outburst of my anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake, but my steadfast love will not be removed from you. Let me say that again. My steadfast love will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord. Now, a few chapters earlier in Isaiah, the people of the land had fallen into despair and they cried out, the Lord has forgotten us. But here's what Yahweh says in response. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? I will not forget you, God says. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. That's how much God loves his people Israel. In fact, God says it's impossible that he would ever go back on his promises to Israel, his unconditional covenant with Abraham. Through Jeremiah, God says this, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done. In other words, it's impossible for God to cast them off. And of course, Paul then in the New Testament picks up on this theme, right? In Romans 11, he talks about the binding nature of God's promises to ethnic and national Israel. In Romans 11, Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. I don't know how else to interpret that. That's a pretty clear statement. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. They did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. If the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also. And if the root is holy, the branches are too. So you Gentiles, being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So there is no replacement of Israel. There is a grafting in of Gentiles into the richness of Israel's olive root. And then Paul goes on. I do not want you to be uninformed of this mystery. A partial hardening has happened to Israel. That goes on today. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. This is why we refer to what's happening now as the age of the Gentiles. And so all Israel will be saved, Paul says. Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. Who is Jacob? It's Israel. He will remove ungodliness from Israel. This is my covenant with them. 
God says, with Israel. When I take away their sins, from the standpoint of God's choice, the Jews are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, Paul says. Now, that's not Old Testament, that's new. So is God faithful to his word or not? Is he faithful to his promises? Does he make unconditional covenants and then change them mid-course? No. Is God trustworthy? Does he change his mind? If he just gets fed up with you, does he change his mind? No. The good news is this. The Lord is eternally faithful, steadfast in his love. He is a promise-fulfilling, covenant-keeping God. Now, the objection always is, but yeah, but the Jews rejected their Messiah. And it's true. And they did many other things as well. They chased after foreign gods, right? They trusted in things other than Yahweh. There is a long list of sins in Israel's history. By the way, there is in my life too, in your life. But there is a long history. And yet knowing all that, Paul still says of ethnic Israel, of national Israel, they have not stumbled so as to fall away from God's love. My favorite picture of this actually comes from a book that most people haven't read. It's Hosea. If you've ever read it, you know that God asks his prophet to physically live out the experience that Yahweh himself has with the nation of Israel. He wants him to live it out. So he says, Hosea, I want you to go and marry a morally bankrupt woman, a prostitute, and have children with her. How many, how many of us would volunteer for that? And Hosea does it in obedience, and when she predictably wanders away and cheats on him and falls into some kind of debt or slavery, what does God tell Hosea to do? Go and replace her with another woman. No, that's not what he says. Don't, don't go and replace her. Go search for her, purchase her freedom, and take her back. Does she deserve to be loved? No, but it's a picture of how gracious and how long-suffering God is for his wayward people, Israel. And at the end of chapter 11 in Hosea's prophecy, God cries out, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I surrender you, Israel? And then God speaks of a future time when not only will he show Israel mercy and compassion, but he will regather his people into the land. And he says, I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Now, we're going to pick up on that theme a little bit later in the message, and we're going to try to connect it with what's happening in Israel right now, because there's a lot to be talked about. But for now, we do need to go to the Psalms. <laughs> so grab your Bibles. Let's go to Psalm 48. Psalm 48. This is one of six Psalms that are categorized as Songs of Zion. Psalms of Zion. And this one is structured with this really beautiful poetic balance. In fact, again, I'm not testing your eyesight. I just want to let you know that it's, it's beautifully balanced. And right in the center is verse 8, which has a very important statement that we'll get to in time. But around verse 8 are grouped these four sections of verses, and we'll walk through each of these one at a time and, and talk about just the profound nature of what the psalmist is saying here about the greatness of God and the greatness of Zion. So here we go. Superscription reads a song. That's simple. A psalm of the sons of Korah. So same authorship that we've seen the last couple of weeks. 
Now, this first section, verse one to three, points us to both the physical location and the lofty idea that is Zion. And I'll define Zion in just a moment. So hang with me on that. Verse, verse one, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, his holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north, the city of the great king. God in her palaces, really the better word is in her citadels, has made himself known as a stronghold or a fortress. So the psalmist begins simply by describing the greatness of God and his worthiness to be praised by the entire world. And he attaches praise of Yahweh to this particular place. We got to see this. Yerushalayim, as we say Jerusalem, right? The city of our God, the psalmist says. The city of our God built on his possessive, his holy mountain. Mount Zion, the city of the great king. And ultimately, guys, what you need to see in this psalm is that is what makes Jerusalem special. That God calls it his city. That God calls it his eternal home. It is the only place in this entire globe that can make that claim. That God says that about that particular place. And listen, when you go to Jerusalem today, and some of you have, if you're honest, you look around, you recognize I've been to nicer cities. I've been to cities with more natural beauty to it, with more you know, upgrades, more spacious, more advanced. But if you've been to Jerusalem, you also know that you can literally feel how special that place is as you walk its streets. There's just something that draws you to Jerusalem. And you look around and you see evidences of layer upon layer upon layer of world history and biblical history. And the psalmist says it's beautiful in its elevation. Not that it's, not that it's super tall. There are taller mountains in Israel. But the way to Zion is uphill, right? You always go up to Jerusalem. And the Israelites, back in this day, they understood that picture. How you, you, When you enter the holy city, you have to look up. And it causes you to lift your eyes to heaven, to know that you're going to somewhere where God himself is present. You had to lift your eyes. And then when you went to the temple, you had to lift your eyes even more to go up the steps into this magnificent structure where the presence of Yahweh was in the Holy of Holies. You had to lift your eyes to heaven. And as you took those steps, you would ponder the Psalms of ascent. The whole direction is up, 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 up. And, and among Israelites, they understood spiritually, it was almost as if that was the place on the entire globe where the, the ground under their feet met heaven on God's holy mountain, in God's holy city. So what exactly is Zion? You hear that term in scripture and it sounds kind of vague, doesn't it? What does it actually refer to? Well, a whole bunch of different things. First of all, you'll find that term 152 times in the Old Testament and seven times in the New. So it's no small thing. The first time Zion is mentioned, it's simply named for the fortress that David captures. When David comes around 1000 BC and he attacks Jerusalem with his soldiers, the fortress there was known as Zion. And then the city, once he captured it, became known as the city of David. And then to the north of that fortress was a mountain, a higher plateau called Mount Moriah. And Mount Moriah already had a famous uh, biblical story attached to it, right? That's the place where Abraham obeyed God by bringing his precious son Isaac 
to sacrifice him before the Lord stopped him and provided a substitute offering, which of course was a foreshadowing of how thousands of years later, God himself would offer up his one and only son as a substitution for our sins, as a sacrifice for us. So you've got, you've got the fortress of the city of David, then above it you have Mount Moriah, and after David established his royal city and built his royal palace, he bought a plot of land up on Mount Moriah from a Jebusite farmer who used it as what? A threshing floor, where you do what? You separate the wheat from the chaff. And he bought this plot of land. And then later, David's son Solomon would build his magnificent temple on that particular spot. Now, you know what I'm about to do, right? Oh, pictures at least. Okay, so, so this is what the city of David looked like when he conquered it in around 1000 BC. Very small compared to current Jerusalem, which I'll show you in a second. He built a palace. Remember, everything was always built up in Jerusalem, so you would put your palace at the far northern side, and then above that was Mount Moriah, and that is where Solomon will eventually build the temple, but that's what the city would have looked like in that time. Now, what did it look like in Jesus's day, trying to match? There it is. So there's the city of David in that circle, and now Herod the Great has expanded He's built retaining walls and expanded the Temple Mount platform and made the temple much, much larger than it was in the days of Solomon. And then the city itself expanded much further north and obviously much further to the west. What does it look like today? It's all still there. If you go today, there's the city of David. You can literally walk up that street and walk through the city of David and see the tombs of the kings there. David's family tombs are there in the city of David. And then you still have the walls of the Temple Mount to the north. So all of that is still present. So this is what we're talking about. We talk about Zion. Okay, this is very important to understand. I'm gonna get rid of those pictures just so it doesn't distract you. So originally, again, the fortress, which became the city of David, was called Zion. But once the temple then was built on Mount Moriah, guess what? That became, I'm sorry, was built on Mount Moriah, became known as what? Mount Zion. So the name throughout the, throughout the biblical history expands in scope and includes more and more. Eventually, so it was first here, then it was all of that, and then it became later on, the entire city of Jerusalem was known as Zion, including the Temple Mount. And by the time you get to the prophecy of Jeremiah in the sixth century BC, guess what? The entire land of Israel and Judah is called what? It's called Zion. So the name is very expansive. So wherever you read it in scripture, it's going to mean something. The meaning is going to vary slightly based on the context. City of David, Temple Mount, Jerusalem, Israel and Judah, the city of God, the holy mountain, the eternal city, the city that God loves. That's what Zion is. And guys, this is why so much of human history revolves around this one location. Why even to this day, people say that is the most sacred piece of real estate in the entire earth. Why so much blood has been spilled there? For thousands of years, why Israel right now as we speak this morning, as we're sitting here, is having to defend that piece of land from her enemies. It's because the one true God's eyes and interested are riveted on Zion. But consequently, so are God's enemies to take it from him. I think it's safe to say that no location on earth matches Jerusalem for its intensity of both heavenly interest, but also spiritual warfare. And again, when you walk the streets of Jerusalem, you get a sense of that. You feel it. 
Now, just to complicate things, Zion takes on an even wider spiritual meaning for New Testament believers. I'm gonna close the message with that later on as we talk about what it means for us as, as believers in Christ. But you may be asking the question, you know, Jeff, I'm a little confused. The temple's gone. Jesus came to fulfill its purpose. And now so many generations have come and gone and the city has changed hands over and over again. So tell me why the church should care. Tell me why this matters. And I'll point to a simple verse in Psalm 132 that says this. It says, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. God says this, listen, this is my resting place forever. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. So the physical location of Jerusalem and Israel still matters to God. He is still uniquely concerned for his city and for his land and he has a plan for it. See, when Jesus physically returns, he's coming to a physical place, right? We know that he physically ascended, right? We also know that he'll physically return. And of course, when you return physically, you return to a physical place. And guess what? He's not coming back to America. <laughs> Shock. And he's not going to Europe or the Far East, right? His physical feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, where? In Jerusalem, says Zechariah. And he will reign there in his city on his holy mountain for a thousand years. That makes the land a pretty big deal. Pretty big deal. Now listen, we look at Jerusalem today and what do we see? War and conflict and strife. So what is it gonna take to transform Jerusalem from its current condition as a city to the joy of the whole earth, as the psalmist said? Only one thing can do that. It's the return of God. That's the only thing that can change it. It is so messed up right now and there's so much strife and so much bloodshed. The only thing that's gonna change it and transform it is the return of Christ himself. But this time Jesus is not coming back as the lamb. He's coming back as the lion, isn't he? In his magnificent glorified state. That's, that's our hope. That's what we're watching for. Right, have you guys begun to lift your eyes just a wee bit more in recent days? That's what we look for. All right, let's keep going. Verse four to seven, and I'll go through the rest of this quickly. The psalmist speaks of futility of attacking a city where God dwells. Why would you do that? The living God, the one true God dwells in this place. Why would you attack it? Verse four, for lo or look, the kings assembled themselves. They passed by or they advanced together. They saw it, meaning Zion, then they were amazed. They were terrified. They fled in terror. Panic seized them there. Anguish as of a woman in childbirth. With the east wind, you break the ships of Tarshish. Meaning these strong ships, God just goes and blows them away. Now scholars are, are divided about whether this part of the psalm refers to a specific event in Israel's history or some combination of events or it's just a general statement but the point stands there's simply no way that any king or army can advance towards Israel and overcome Zion against God's sovereign will they may try and they may come to Jerusalem with all kinds of confidence but when they realize that Yahweh dwells there it says they're terrified and they flee in panic but it's listen there's more fortified cities in the Middle East 
than Jerusalem in that day. So it's not how impressive her towers are or her defenses, it's that Yahweh dwells there and they flee in panic. And this is important to understand in light of the events of this past week and what's going on this morning. Any attack against Israel will be futile if, if God in his sovereign will has purposed to defend the land and the city. You cannot overcome God's will. If he says, nope, nobody is gonna touch my land or my city, nobody will. We believe that, right? He's a mighty fortress for the protection of Zion. By the way, that's why we sang that song this morning. Martin Luther, when he wrote Mighty Fortress, he was inspired by Psalm 46 and Psalm 48. He saw it right there. God is a mighty fortress for those whom he loves. Now we come to verse eight, which is again the centerpiece of the psalm, and it talks about Zion is forever secure as God's eternal city. God has established it that way. Verse eight, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, repeating that for emphasis, God will establish her, how long? Forever. So Selah, reflect on that. God will establish Zion forever, for all eternity. And that term, Lord of hosts, is a military title, isn't it? It's the Lord of armies. The implication flows out of the previous section that God will chase away the enemies of Israel and protect his holy city because he's purposed to establish Zion for all eternity. And we'll talk more about that at the end. Let's look at verses nine through 11 now. You see the joy that God's people have because God and his saving acts have saved the holy city. We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgment. So the people go to the temple and they meditate upon the goodness of God. And why not? They're surrounded by enemies who want to destroy the city, and yet God protects them. And so they meditate on his judgments in, in driving away these enemies, his justice in that. They're grateful for his protection. And then the final section, verses 12 to 14, we see the psalmist inviting the reader to take a walking tour of the city. Look what he says. Walk about Zion and go around her. Count her towers. Consider her ramparts. Go through her palaces or citadels that you may tell it to the next generation. For such is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us until death, or he will guide us forever. What makes me smile when I read that passage is whenever I take a group to Israel, we, we go to Jerusalem and we take what's called the ramparts tour. And what you can do is you can walk the ancient walls and you see the city from above and you see the towers and you see the gates. And that's exactly what the psalmist is, is inviting the reader to do. Look around at what God has done here. Look at the defensive structures. But ultimately, he's pointing to God. It's Yahweh who is responsible for all of it. Because look, man-made structures can fall. There is no man-made structure that cannot be brought down. But if Yahweh dwells in Zion, it will not come down. But the command here is important. He says, look, walk around, take a look around, and after you see it and you recognize that this is where God dwells, Go tell it to somebody else. Tell it to the next generation. 
so that faithfulness lives from generation to generation. See the mighty acts of God. See how he's protected us. See how he loves us. Tell the next generation. And as we finish with this text, as much as the psalm is about the glory of Zion, it's really about Zion's God. That's, that's the point. In fact, there's what, in scripture, we call this an inclusio. When you see things bracketed at the beginning and the end of a poem like this, two concepts. Verse one begins, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. And in verse 14, it finishes, for such is our God, our God forever and ever. So Zion is, glory, is filled with glory, right? Why? Because, because Yahweh has chosen it because Yahweh says, that is my home forever. That's why. So it all points to God. Hint, God is always at the center of every single text of scripture, right? Because there's lots of other things to be distracted by, but God is always at the center. Okay, before we leave the Psalm, these words do raise a problem. And maybe you've already thought about it. The Psalmist here is, is praising the invincibility of Zion. And yet we know Jerusalem has fallen to foreign armies multiple times, right? The Babylonians, the Romans. So what went wrong in those cases? Well, this is what we need to get into because repeated and unrepentant sin invariably invites God's discipline into one's life. And that's true of Israel as well. God will bring discipline upon those who are disobedient, even his own people, even the city that he loves. And sadly, towards the last 600 years of Israel's history, what you see is them presuming upon God's grace, falsely believing that God is going to protect them from all foreign enemies, regardless of the condition of their hearts. Basically saying, look, we can do whatever we want because God is going to protect Zion. It's his city. So look, if God's going to protect us, why should we repent? That's the attitude of the leaders of Judah at the time of Jeremiah. Look, we don't have to worry about this. We can keep sinning because God says he will protect Zion. They were tragically wrong, weren't they? So let's talk about how all this fits in with what's going on in Israel right now. Because the eyes of the world right now are locked on Zion, which gives us opportunities to share the good news about Christ. Are we about to witness the end of days? How many of you guys have seen somebody online go on there and say, hey, this is the beginning of World War III. Things are going to spiral out of control. This is the end of days. God's going to come down. He's going to defend his city and his holy mountain from all these enemies that are now lining up against Israel from every direction. And it's true. Egypt and Syria and Iran from all directions, maybe Turkey. It could get serious. Well, despite all the confusion in the church over eschatology, one of the most important signs that Christ's return is near did take place in my parents' generation, right? The spectacular rebirth of the nation of Israel in 1948. Now, I know everybody, every generation has said, Jesus is coming back in my time, right? Because they could look on the, on the sort of horizon of history and say, look at the wickedness. Look at the, the awful things. World War I is a great example. People said, this is the war to end all wars. Surely Jesus is coming back. But past generations couldn't point to the existence of national and ethnic Israel being back in Zion. That is one of the things that separates where we stand today versus previous generations. Because for almost 2,000 years, 
the Jews were scattered across this world from one end of the globe to the other. They were a people without a homeland. They were unwanted and persecuted everywhere they went. And Jesus predicted that would happen, by the way. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus said, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near. Then those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. And those who are in the midst of the city have to leave, for there will be great distress upon the land and wrath to this people. And they will be led captive into all the nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus predicted it. From the time of their national rejection of their Messiah, the nation of Israel has been under the severe discipline of Yahweh. They've been scattered to every corner of the globe. They've become refugees in Gentile nations. And Jesus seems to imply here that that situation isn't going to change until the age of the Gentiles is over, the age that we're in right now. God spoke through Hosea about this too. Here's what he said. The sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or without prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without the ephod or any household idols. So basically their worship would be wiped out. They'll have no national leader. But afterwards, God says, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God, and they will seek David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and to his goodness in the last days. And so century after century came and went, and Israel didn't have a king, and they didn't have a homeland. They didn't have a temple. And if you know anything about the history of the Jews, they have been in all these nations just basically eking out in existence, trying to survive as a people. Shouldn't have been a surprise to any Israelite that really knew his or her Torah because in Deuteronomy chapter 28, God promised. He promised to curse his people if they were disobedient. And he was very specific about it. Listen to Deuteronomy 28. See if this doesn't match up with history. God said to his people, if you do not obey the Lord your God, he will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. And you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you and your fathers have not known. Listen now. Among those nations, you shall find no rest. And there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, and despair of soul. Your life will hang in doubt before you, and you will be in dread night and day, and shall have no assurance of your life. How much does that line up with history? That's been the story of the Jews since they were expelled from the land. No matter what nation they found themselves in, they endured hatred and suspicion and persecution from Gentile populations. In fact, the right, anti-Semitism has risen in every single generation since then. Have you, have you taken note of this, the supernatural hatred of the Jews all over the world? Have we not seen it even this week? In protests in cities in America, blatant anti-Semitism. And we don't have to go back very far. 
in the 20th century, the blood of six million Jews is pretty good proof that the Jews have suffered in being expelled from the land. Now, God promised to sustain a remnant for his own possession, but the scriptures indicate that the Jews are gonna continue to suffer right up until the point that they repent and turn to their Messiah and put their faith in Christ. But when you study the Old Testament, you see promise after promise in the prophets. Over and over again, someday, the Lord is gonna regather his people in his holy land. You see it in Isaiah. You see it in Jeremiah. You see it in Ezekiel. You see it in Zechariah. And then, again, in my parents' generation, grandparents' generation, in the late 19th century, early 20th century, after World War I, we began to see what we call the Zionist movement. The power of the Ottoman Empire, which had ruled the Holy Land for so long, was broken, and slowly Jews began to matriculate back to Zion. Now, here's the problem with it. That's all well and good. You might say, well, okay, here comes prophecy. It's happening. Here's the biblical problem. That Zionist movement was not religious at all. At all. It was completely secular. It was completely nationalistic. And that forces us to ask the question. This question has enormous consequences on how we read what's happening in the world today. Why did God, Israel, why did God allow Israel to become a nation again in 1948 if he knew they weren't repentant and if, they knew, if he knew they had no intention of turning to Christ to be saved? Why did he allow it? We gotta recognize this, guys. Israel today is not believing Israel. It's not the same as ancient Israel. Ethnically it is, but it is completely secular. It's not devoted to the glory of God in any way. Yet for the first time in almost 2,000 years, let's, let's, let's just admit the historical fact, the Jews regain control over Zion, including the city of Jerusalem. They are free from Gentile domination in that land. That is a remarkable thing. So is it a fulfillment of prophecy? Is modern day Israel a fulfillment of prophecy? We know this much, it's no fluke of history, right? Because God is sovereign over this. So nothing happens outside of his control. So there's clearly something going on, something. So I believe the answer to all this is found in the book of Ezekiel. Now, nobody likes to read Ezekiel. Have you noticed that? It's a really hard book. But most of the big answers about the regathering of Israel are found in Ezekiel. So I know you're tired already. I can see it in your faces but it's going to get intense here. Do you need to stretch? Is it Eden, you need stress? You're okay? Okay, like the other prophets, Ezekiel confirms the reason why Israel was expelled from the land. Here's what he says. When the house of Israel was living in their own land, they defiled it, Ezekiel says. They defiled the land by their ways and their deeds. Therefore, God says, I poured out my wrath on them. I scattered them among the nations. Here's the key. I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations where they went. So the Jews were out there scattered and they were profaning the name of the Lord. And that explains at least partially the mystery of why Israel has returned these days. When the Jews suffered the judgment of exile, 
what happened was the nations of the world saw what was happening and they saw how poorly the Jews were being treated. And in essence, they said, hold on a second. Aren't these God's chosen people? But they've been driven out of their lands and now they're being treated poorly. What kind of a God do they worship that allows that to happen? And so God's name was being profaned. So in Ezekiel 36, here's how God responds. He says, say to the house of Israel, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Deep breath. Here's what he says. For I will take you, Israel, from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Did you catch that? God is gonna do that work. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Does that not sound like the new covenant? I will put my spirit within you, he says. He goes on. You will live in the land that I gave to your forefathers. You will be my people and I will be your God. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the produce of the field. So he's gonna restore prosperity to the land. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your abominations. I'm not doing this for your sake, declares the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. So God says, I am gonna do this work among you. It's not because of you. It's because I will vindicate my name, my holy name. So he will reverse the scattering and he will bring the Jews back to their land. But see this, it's not because they're repentant. This is so important to see. It's not because they're repentant. It's because of his mercy. In fact, he says they will continue to wallow in their sins. They will loathe themselves. They will be ashamed. And now here comes the cool key to this. What's the next chapter after Ezekiel 36? Very good, Ezekiel 37. (laughs) Pass the test. That chapter should ring a bell. It's a very important chapter. It's the Valley of Dry Bones. Some, probably the most famous, most well-known prophecy related to the, the regathering of Israel in chapter 37, the Valley of Dry Bones. This is where God says to Ezekiel, hey, my prophet, I want you to prophesy the impossible. You see those really dry, dead bones? I want you to resurrect them. I want you to call them to life. Ezekiel's like, can't be done. Can't be done. Oh, with God, it's not possible? Can't be done. They're dry, they're dead. But then when Ezekiel prophesies over them, what happens? He begins to hear them coming back together, right? But right at the point where it feels like they're gonna come back to life, Ezekiel makes a very important observation, which is key to understanding what's happening in Israel today. He looks at these bones coming back together and he says, there's no breath in them. They might be physically alive, but they're not spiritually alive. There's no breath in them. God hasn't put his spirit, his ruach, in them. 
And God says, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. In other words, after thousands of years of captivity, the Jews had given up. They have no hope, but God has a plan. He says, therefore, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, listen now, behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, my people, he says, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. I will bring you to the land. I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. So here's how I interpret this. When Ezekiel sees these bones coming out of the graves and being assembled with no breath in them, what he's seeing there is the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, national Israel being regathered, but still spiritually dead, still with no belief. And they will not believe and they cannot believe until God does that work to put his spirit within them. They'll just be a collection of bones. Because there's no, listen, there are no two paths to God. It's only through Jesus Christ. If they will not trust in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, they will not, will not get God's spirit and they will not come to life. We have to affirm that. And then there's just one final passage from the book of Ezekiel that is sort of the topper on this and it comes from chapter 20. Here's what God says. As I live, declares the Lord God, with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, and with wrath poured out, I shall be king over you. I will be your king. I will bring you out from the peoples and gather you from the lands where you were scattered. And I will, listen to this, I will bring you into the wilderness of the peoples and there I will enter into judgment with you face to face. Oh, so it's not all, it's not all happy, happy, joy, joy. God says, I'll regather you for what purpose? For judgment. For judgment. And he says, I entered into judgment with your fathers in the wilderness of the land of Egypt, so I will enter into judgment with you. So the Jews who had been scattered into the wilderness during this age of the Gentiles are prophesied to be brought back for the purpose of judgment. Now, think historically. Again, how did Israel become a nation in 1948? Was it because of national repentance? Nope. Was it because they were seeking their Messiah? Nope. It was political ambition. And yet God in his mercy is still seen fit to do this in the day. God is setting the table. He is putting the players on the chessboard. He has reconstituted Israel. He has gathered millions of Jewish settlers from every corner of the globe and brought them back to the land and granted them independence as a nation. Listen now. They are out of the grave, but there's no breath in them. Do you see it now? They're out of the grave, out of the wilderness. They've been brought to the land, but there is no life in them. Not yet. Not yet. That means the nation of Israel is headed towards a day of reckoning with God. And he will enter into judgment with them face to face. A judgment, by the way, that's not meant to destroy them a judgment that is meant to call them to repentance and faith. Here's the thing. That only comes through great tribulation. That's what's coming for Israel. But all Israel will be saved, Paul says, but it will come through tribulation. And after the time of Jacob's trouble, which is what Jeremiah calls it, God will deliver his people finally. 
As Zechariah says, he will pour out on Israel a spirit of grace and supplication so that they will look on the one whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And when the Lord is finished with his judgment and Israel finally recognizes her Messiah for who he is, then and only then will there be a massive outpouring of salvation in Zion. And that day is coming. But until then, until that day comes, and I'm not setting a date today, Israel should expect tribulation. Israel should expect trouble. And that's what we're seeing play out right now, this morning. Trouble in the land. Tribulation in Zion. Tragically, in spite of getting their land back, the last 75 years since 1948 has been filled with strife and contention and trouble and tribulation. Constant attacks from Arab neighbors, three major wars and one going on right now, bombings, terrorist uprisings, constant security issues in their midst. They're going through trouble. But they have no life in them right now. Out of the graves, but no life. The so-called Palestinian problem is not going to go away. My guess is as time goes on, it's going to get much, much worse. And ultimately, the security issues that we're seeing right now is going to finally at some point lead to a Middle Eastern war that will not be contained. It will, it will spiral out of control and become a global conflict. And the nations will line up against Israel. And that war is prophesied in Ezekiel 38. And that war is prophesied in Joel chapter 2. Now, is that what we're seeing playing out right now? Is this the war to end all wars? I don't think so. I don't think so. Now, I could be proved wrong in the coming days, but right now, it doesn't look like it. Is this part of the wars and rumors of wars that we should be looking for? I have no doubt. Because it's all happening in the area that where we know ultimately it's all gonna go down. Are they the birth pains? Absolutely. It's all part of the process. As I said, it feels like God is putting the chess players on the board. I don't think this is the final one, but you can begin to see a framework through which that type of conflict could happen. I remember when I was, when I was younger, 30 years ago, I, I would read about this time that's coming where if you don't have the mark of the beast, you won't be able to buy or sell in the marketplace. And we're like, I don't see that happening. Again, it's not here, but can you not see the framework for how it could happen in the not too distant future? The table's being set, but I don't think it's set yet. But guys, let me just say, what a privilege it is to live in these days, to actively look up, not, not become obsessed with, but we're to be alert, right? To actively look around and watch for that moment when Jesus himself said, you'll be able to look up and know that your redemption is near. That day not, may, may not be far off. So I think that's what's happening in the land right now. God is putting Israel through tribulation. It's part of the judgment, but there's coming a day. There's coming a day. Is it my lifetime? I don't know. Is it in your lifetime? Perhaps. But there's coming a day because God always fulfills what he promises. So let me just wrap up. Oh my you guys have been patient because I have to give you a quick encouragement as New Testament believers. 
There is no doubt that Zion is a physical place and that it still matters to God. And it obviously matters in the historical framework at the end of days. But it's also a spiritual kingdom. Zion is a spiritual kingdom And this is so exciting for us. In the book of Hebrews, the author draws this beautiful contrast. He says, look, as New Testament believers, you don't come to Mount Sinai where the law was given. That was a place of darkness and gloom where you couldn't approach God. The kingdom that you come to is Mount Zion. You come to the city of the living God. Listen, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And that's the beauty of who we are in Christ. We now have a great high priest who has opened up the Holy of Holies to us and has allowed us to approach the living God to find grace in our time of need. And one of the coolest things we learn from the book of Hebrews is how the physical things on earth, the physical things that God loves so much, the city, the temple, the land, Hebrews tells us that they are material copies of much greater realities that exist in heaven. They're shadows. So God loves them down here, but there's something far greater in the heavenly realms that we get to see someday. That's pretty cool. So Zion is our true home. As we sit here as New Testament believers, Zion is our true home, the new Jerusalem. And John speaks about it in Revelation 21. He says, someday that new city is going to come down from heaven as the first heaven and the first earth pass away. And in that day, he says, the tabernacle of God will be among men and he will dwell among us forever. So today, we have the privilege of dwelling in Zion, in part with fullness to come, but because we're found in Christ, we're in the presence of God through his blood, we will realize the fullness of the heavenly Jerusalem in the future. And that's the moment where we will finally see him face to face in the place where the psalmist called it, in our psalm for today, the city of God established for how long? Forever. That's our home. And that's our hope. And it's the only hope for Israel today. So let's pray to that end, can we? Father, it it is a um, sometimes confusing time for us here on earth as we look out at the horizon and we see these things happening before our eyes and we try to interpret it. And God, we know that there is so much media and so much misinformation and propaganda happening. We have a hard time sorting through it, Lord. I pray that you will give us wisdom and discernment and a quiet spirit, Lord, to trust in you, to know that you are sovereign, that you are doing something special in the Middle East right now. You are doing something special in Zion, the place that you love. And Father, I just once again pray that you will give us wisdom and how we process through all that, whether it's pulling away from the news or, or it's just looking up, Lord, and praying more. Maybe, maybe, Lord, that's what you need to call us to do more of, is just to pray more and just to seek your peace. But Lord, we pray that you will do a great work in Israel, that you would draw Jews that live in Israel today who are struggling with loss of loved ones and struggling in fear, Lord, that you would draw them to their true Messiah, that they would see Jesus, the one that they've pierced, and they will, they will mourn and they will repent and they will trust in him alone. God, we leave that all to you. We just want you to know that that is our prayer this morning as a church family. And even here in America, Lord, as we process through it, give us peace. 
And give us confidence, Lord, to enter into conversations if you open those doors to talk about the goodness of God in Zion and to talk even more importantly about the Mount Zion that we are in right now through the blood of Christ, that we can have peace through him. So God, we can't handle these things. We can't control any of it. So give us your wisdom and your strength. And Lord, keep us faithful. Thank you for our time this morning. We praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen.